I believe people should live in the way they want to live, but sometimes we do need agreements to make it equitable for everyone involved, right? What's the role of the new third party or fourth party and who's the parent? And, and I, find, I find these shifts in our society fascinating, but also potentially a slippery slope for people to be, you know, to be, to feel they've been taken advantage of if they're not able to enter into a conscious agreement. Hi, I'm Rachel Green, Brooklyn-based divorce mediator and collaborative attorney, and this is my podcast, Keep the Kids in Mind. Join me as I chat with other industry professionals about everything from smoothly navigating your way through divorce to prenups, all the while keeping the kids in mind. Hi, I'm Rachel Green, and this is my podcast, Keep the Kids in Mind. Today, I'm very pleased to have as our guest, Sherry Morris. She is a lawyer by training and long practice, and he, she has now shifted her practice entirely to divorce coaching and conflict mediation. For almost nine years, she served individuals and couples contemplating during or um, during divorce or post-divorce complications. She's also a certified parent coordinator, um, helping families resolve conflicts. And I'm sure she's going to have a lot to tell us about her experiences helping her clients keep her, keep their kids in mind. Welcome, Sherry. Thank you, Rachel. It's my pleasure to be here today. So you've had such an interesting journey starting out as an attorney um, working in this field of families in transition. Um, so what were your experiences as an attorney and what has led to your, your career path of changing, shifting your focus? Well, thank you for asking, Rachel. Um, I was a practicing attorney for a long time. My preference was always to stay on the side of cooperation, facilitation, mediation, but I was actually a litigator, so that wasn't always possible. And what I noticed um, when I transitioned in my own divorce was that people in families can't necessarily apply the same structure or shouldn't apply the same structure that we apply to all other kinds of law if we want to preserve the family system. So I happened to have um, a husband at the time who was also a litigator, and we played by different rules. Um, you know, in litigation, the idea is you're right or you're wrong, and there's a winner and there's a loser. And from my right. perspective, we needed to think of something different for our family system. So it was from my own experience that I eventually did additional certification to become a full-time coach and parent coordinator and to work in the coaching mediation space. Um, I discovered trans transformational mediation, which is really about listening, hearing, and responding to what the other is saying. And that informed the rest of my, my work, um, becoming collaboratively trained and really working in the space with couples to teach them skills they may not have, um, to listen to each other and so that they can effectively co-parent and take care of themselves and their children. So were you a matrimonial litigator? We were not. My, my former husband and I had a, a law firm together, but it wasn't family law. I practiced a number of different kinds of law, um, in, you know, from pharmaceutical defense to insurance defense to plaintiffs, class action uh, cases, which was, of course, on the side of truth and justice. Um, 
And it's just not a very cooperative kind of law, right? So, so I mean, most litigation seems, I actually never litigated, but um, it seems to me that's ritualized war. I mean, you're out to destroy the other person the other company, the other entity, whatever. Yeah. And, um, and you're, you're really trying to, um, you know, you want, you win, there's a winner and a loser. Um, and, and I agree a hundred percent that with families, um, you know, your children are not going to thank you for destroying their other parent. Oh, that is well said. And, and the idea of ritualized war is what I have seen happen also, right, in family law matters. And it's terrible for everyone involved, and including the adults. Um, and there's yeah. just no reason to apply that paradigm. I mean, we could argue about we, whether it should be applied. We, we can keep the adults in mind, too, not just the kids. I did. Yes, exactly. Imagine. And I find that, you know, that old expression of if mom ain't happy, nobody going to be happy. Right. Well, it applies to obviously moms, dads, uh, any parent. And I think that the better we can do for ourselves, the better we can do for our kids. But maybe we don't know how to do that. So, you know, learning those skills like anything else um, can be part of the work I do. So do you, you work with people? Um as a coach, but also as a mediator. Um, I mean, are those distinct? Those are distinct roles. You would either be a mediator or a coach. Great question. I can work with the individual as a coach, and that would be a distinct role. When I'm mediating, I'm doing coaching mediation, Rachel, so I will not be a legal mediator. So in my perfect narrative, people have their individual lawyer, if they prefer just a mediator, sure, they can do that. But I really like people to have individual advice. And then when they have difficulty, they can come to me. We can talk about anything from the kids to, you know, why someone wants to keep the house and how realistic that is. But I find the direct communication, not between lawyers, right, which can get complicated and, and tough, but really hearing with proper language, the skills we've worked on in the background. Because when I meet with a couple, I'm meeting with them individually, and then we come together, which makes it less like traditional legal mediation and definitely in the coaching space. But we we apply that transformative lens. Let's listen, let's use empathy, and then let's speak. Let's speak from our heart, but it's important to say it in a way that the other person will hear. Right, right. So your focus is on facilitating the communication and trying to find out where the uh, tangles are (laughs) that's stopping the communication, getting from one person to the other. Yeah. I love your language, by the way, ritualized tangles, really good. (laughs) Thank you. Um, And, and um, what do you do in a situation where, um, you know, very typically, I'm sure you, I'm sure this is true in, uh, in, in Washington and in DC and all the places that you've worked and lived, but um, that it's, it's very common. I've seen in my practice that um, one person has probably been thinking about this and, and mulling it over and, you know, maybe the idea crosses their mind, maybe we need to separate and end our relationship. And then, you know, and then they go, Oh, no, 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 I that's not what I want to happen. And then, you know, the thought comes back again, four months later, and you know, maybe it's two or three years that before they tell their other spouse, and the other spouse is like, Pew! and they're just completely blindsided. And so you have one person who's been thinking about this for years, and the other person who has never thought about. It. And, um, 
and and part of the process I find as a mediator um, or in a collaborative process. I mean, that's all that I do is those two processes, and um, and I find that a lot of the process is is giving the you know the second person time because you can't really think how you want your life your future structured until you're ready to say, this is my future. (laughs) Like, this is where we're headed. It's so true, Rachel. And I'm really glad you brought up that topic. It's something I see all the time. And the one, as you say, who's contemplated for two or three years, maybe, is already done. I call it emotionally done. And now, sometimes they're asking their spouse to catch up really quickly. So the work I do around that initially, especially if I'm working with a couple, is very practical. Um, I believe if someone needs to be in therapy, they should have the therapeutic support too. But in coaching, I will work to get them engaged, for example, if they have not been in their finances. Let's take this a step at a time. Because if they're living in the space of fear, I find the most practical way to solve that is to put them in the space of empowerment, which means do you understand your finances? Are you hearing what your spouse says about the children that this can be okay? And And of course, I'm talking about situations where it can be okay or that they're both, but also talking to the spouse who's ready to go, ready to, ready to leave about how important it is to hold space for the other and to really give us a little time to help them catch up. And in a really practical way, we're going to be taking active steps. It doesn't mean burying your head in the sand, right? Um, And I also find, Rachel, and I wonder if this is true for you too, that people who claim to be blindsided in general Yes, it may be a shock, it may be a surprise, but there were signs. Something was happening. I think you're right. I mean, just like, I think that on some level, 99% of the time, you know, when your spouse is having an affair, you know, even though you're, you're like trying not to know it and you're trying to deny it, but on some level, you know, that something has shifted, you know, and maybe it's just that they're not putting all their energy into the dyad of the two of you. There's like the energy is going somewhere else and it's just a change. Um, That's on right. some level, you, you, you knew it. And I think for that kind of work, it's, it's really more global because it tends to be someone who might be avoidant, right, in their conflict methods. So how do we bring them to the table without overwhelm to calm that escalation they may have emotionally? but also in a really practical way, make sure they're paying attention to their interests because ultimately they've got to show up if they want to take care of their own future. Right. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's all so interesting and, you know, so helpful to families who are in transition. Do you see um, a big difference between, you know, more and more I'm seeing couples who have a child or children together, but never got married. And it seems like there, you know, there's like a, a difference in the level of conflict between them. Um, and and it, it makes me think, I don't know if you've observed this as well. Um, it, it makes me wonder whether there's something about having had that period in your relationship where you were idealistic and in love and, you know, stood up in front of friends and family and said, I'm going to commit to this person that there's something about that, that even later, years later, they're divorcing. It helps them to, you know, just to have that, had that shared history. That's a great 
point, Rachel. I'm so glad you ha- you asked such interesting uh, questions. And the reason it resonates for me is personally and professionally, and I'll tell you why. Um, I am now part of a blended family after my divorce, but we're domestic partners, um, my partner yeah. and I. And, and he and I have not stood up in front of friends and family, but we've now been blended as, as a family with children for about 10 years. But I take, I take your point. And one thing I noticed professionally that we did differently is that some couples who do not marry, right, or have a ritualized ceremony even haven't also combined in other ways that are impactful. So, for example, they may not share finances, which in the end could be okay for them, but also can lead to resentment if they haven't come up with a system that feels equitable to both of them. For mm-hmm. Even though on the one hand, I haven't had the ritual, we we made a conscious decision to do that differently with finances, in part based on the work I do. I think it's important that everybody become really aware of who's, you know, where the money is and how you're going to spend it, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm curious if, if from your perspective, part of the not being married means they haven't really integrated on a number of levels. Um, that's very, yeah, that's a very good point. So you and your partner now, do share information about finances. You're transparent about that. And you, you have consciously discussed how you're going to share finances so that you both feel um, comfortable with that. That's right. In fact, we created, um, you know, an agreement, a legal agreement. And I, I find as you talk about families that haven't married, I now see more families that have that look different, polyamory, right? Right. Um, now beginning to see structures that look very different than the traditional family. So yeah, definitely. And I think it's fascinating because I I believe people should live in the way they want to live, but sometimes we do need agreements to make it equitable for everyone involved, right? Right. What's, what's the role of the new third party or fourth party, and who's the parent and and I find I find these shifts in our society fascinating, but also potentially a slippery slope for people to be, you know, to be to feel they've been taken advantage of if they're not able to enter into a conscious agreement. Yeah, yeah, that's um, that's really interesting. So it might be your work or your experience in your uh, prior marriage and and the experience you went through about with that relationship ending that kind of informed your your structure that you and your partner came up with I to try so. to yeah um and I, and I I think that's a very good point that the the couples who are not married may not have had that experience and had an you know the the under you know the um education as an attorney to be able to draft a an agreement and you know and i think you're right that they haven't joined um finances and they haven't probably joined other other aspects of their lives consciously to try to um build a foundation for the relationship to last and and then there were um secret resentments building up um that may have led to the end of the uh relationship I'm currently working um, with a couple, in fact, that had opened their marriage, so they're not technically polyamorous in any sense, but um, I find some of the complications from that, whether they decide to stay or go, decide to stay together, and they have two teenage children, is about those agreements between them and the other parties. 
So right now it's really still, they are the primary, but what happens if you do open the marriage and you're doing it for emotional reasons, physical reasons, whatever they may be, but then what happens next? Because the risk is pretty high that someone becomes emotionally attached to someone else. It's new, it's exciting, right? Um, but then what? So I really try not to encourage people to think about everything that can go wrong, but to think consciously about what what could be next. And just to enter agreements before you do things like open a marriage about how you want things to look for your children and, and for each other. When your yeah. instincts are probably going to be well-intended. Yeah, I've had two or three couples, I think this year, who have had conflicts over having open marriages or being polyamorous. And, you know, one person said, well, we always said we were going to do this. And the other person said, I never said I was going to do that. And, um, and they're, you know, they're splitting up and saying, you changed the contract midway. And, uh, you know, it's, it is interesting how much that that's growing in, in society. And I think we in this space helping support people who have these challenges, you know, really have an obligation to learn the terminology Um, In working with a different client yesterday. She was distinguishing for me, you know, joining a swingers club versus being polyamorous, like the emotional commitment to being in a polyamorous relationship versus looking outside a relationship for sexual reasons only. Mm. And, and I think it's interesting, but again, these are conscious, you know, conversations. If you're willing from my perspective, right. As a professional to be willing to think about sexual intimacy outside of your marriage that you want to talk about with your partner, you should really come to some agreement about what that looks like. Um, because there are just so many unintended consequences. Yeah. Yeah. And people can be really hurt. Yes. Yeah. Um, so how would you, what would you say um, are the benefits of uh, divorce coaching? So I think for divorce coaching, the real benefit is that you have someone with experience in divorce, first of all. If you do divorce, you generally do it only a, once, maybe twice. I mean, we've heard people who divorce many more times, but it's not something you're doing every day. So the benefit of having a professional who understands the stages, the process, and can help you in a really practical way, not spend time always with your legal professional to solve a problem that may not be legal. So it can be very practical. I don't understand what'll happen next. I don't know how to accomplish this thing. I can't get my you know, husband to pick up the kids on time. Well, how are you asking him? Well, I'm telling him he's always late and that's not working. So we, we really try to, in a very practical way, make sure that you're functioning during something that can be a very emotionally stressful process in a really positive way for you. You learn how to talk to your kids about what's happening. You know how to focus on their age and stage developmentally. So I, so I think divorce coaching, you know, and, and I'd say in the last 10 years, it's really exploded. People didn't even know before, right? Like that this resource existed. So I think the really practical side of it can help unburden the legal system and the lawyers and have a place that feels like a soft landing for people who need it. And honestly, I think most adults need it and then they do better with their kids. So um, would you typically um, talk to somebody who 
who like what what stage would they come to you? Have they decided that there's definitely separating? Um, and by the way, when I say divorce, I mean divorce and or separating, you know, as well, because as I, as we were saying, there are more and more people right. who are not getting married, um, par- partly because of the high divorce rate. And then from a legal perspective, the things they have to talk about are fewer and it's simpler from an emotional perspective. It's very much the same. Yes. Um, but um, like, at what point do people reach out to you or should they reach out to you? <laughs> you know, it's a great question. And I, I find the sooner you do, the better. And I'll work with people at any stage. So if you're contemplating but haven't decided for sure, um, if you're the one that's being left, so maybe you don't have a choice, that's a great time to reach out because if you have decided to leave, but you aren't the primary keeper of your finances, so you really have no idea of the financial consequences of leaving. Now's a good time to get really granular and think about what do you need to think about with regard to money, with regard to the kids, with regard to what's next and best for you. So ideally the framework is very early, but sometimes people, as we know, either stumble or consciously move along and then complications arise. So if that happens, I'm really ready at any stage, even in litigation to jump in and say, Okay, what can we do to de-escalate the system? So if you feel like things are out of control in a way that's not manageable, we'll we'll try to hit a reset button. Now, it can be more complicated to do that once things are escalated, but not impossible. Um, but I really like to start at the beginning when I can because I even, you know, make recommendations for legal professionals for financial professionals for therapeutic professionals that are geared toward de-escalation. And as we know, not everyone in the system is. So if we already have litigation with a high conflict litigator um, that's gearing up, you know, your your spouse, then that can be problematic. It can be a harder, a harder place to start. But it's not impossible. And I've seen it happen. And I've seen families come out the other side doing better, even if it started in a high conflict way. Really? Can you like give us give me an example? So I actually had a family, yeah. Yeah, a gray divorce couple that was in litigation and their young adult adult children had been pulled into the conflict and were really suffering. And you know, it was an interesting narrative because I think both mom and dad thought, well, they're adults, they should be able to understand my perspective, right? Rather than they're still children and our children and part of this family. So right. emotionally they're still the parents and children, even even if they're 30. Exactly. Yeah. And that and that's what was happening. And what I saw when when I because they were adults, I don't talk to children that are minors, but adult children, if they choose, can can participate. You know, their their grief was profound, as you can imagine, to be stuck in between mom and dad. So I worked with mom and dad to say, look, what is it you're really arguing over, first of all? And it really wasn't very much. And if we can if we can talk about that and talk about the meaning behind the thing that you want so much, which maybe could be given to the other from another category. Right. Rather than give up this seventy thousand dollars that was a joint gift from one of your parents to both of you. Let's look at that. $70,000 $70,000 from the savings account. It was it, it just required a little creativity. But then they were able to step back and recognize the suffering of their kids, which they didn't want. They just were so caught in their own bubble 
So Um, once we started talking and they talked together, I think facilitation, and it's not that it was special to me or unique to me, but having a facilitator help them talk, they were using better language, more supportive language. They were clearer about what they needed and wanted. And once we did that, they have been able to attend family weddings. Um, I hear from each of them about how, you know, how they're doing one and the other spouse actually took them even post-divorced to the procedure. Um, you know, we all might joke and think, well, that would be one of the benefits of divorce, not having to do that. But they were able to come back together and actually support one another in ways that were really profound and that made sure their kids weren't caught in the middle or further burdened by what was happening. And and are they better for the divorce? I think so. Right. It may yeah. have been longer in the marriage than it should have been, which can also happen if they stayed together until the children were adults, but they actually didn't have the skills to apply to reduce the conflict for the kids. So the the results were just as devastating, honestly. Yeah. So that's so interesting that it sounds like that couple, the litigation process just, you know, was like pitting them against each other, like, um, you know, and just keeping them not able to reach agreement because it's like the litigation process. You're just becoming like more and more set into your position, your ideas that this is the settlement I need. And you just spend your time, you know, fuming over like around and around and it's going in your brain. Like I need this. Why won't the other partner accept that? I really need this. I just need this because of this, this is, you know, you're building arguments. Um, and once you were able to like pull that apart and say, what does this really mean to you? Um, and then, and then think, well, okay. So if, if what you really need is, you know, $70,000, are there other sources for, you know, I mean, you were able to help them figure out like, it's not just this gift that we received and the fairness of it, but like what you're really, what will be the difference to you in reality? Okay. It's $70,000. If, that's what you need. Let's talk about ways that you could get that in the settlement. And then that like freed them up to be able to focus on their kids. It sounds like. That's right. And I think one of the interesting things to me is once you're in litigation and doing interrogatories, which are, you know, as you well know, those questions you answer. And I only vaguely know because I never (laughs) litigated. (laughs) Okay. And requests for production of documents. They're so legalistic and so formulaic and so meaningless oftentimes. So then it's like you're talking past each other, which is, I think, what was happening in this case, too. Mm -hmm. And then lawyers are busy. So they're not, you know, when they call the opposing counsel, they're focused on this discrete issue and not really able to address the more global problem. So so it wasn't, again, um, to give myself too much credit that I was unique in my ability to facilitate, but I think being able to pull apart, as you said, those threads and look at what was really happening was really impactful. So from my perspective, sometimes getting people in who have conflict, who are already somehow in litigation, we can we can transform that. Now it, it takes them, right? As well as me, they have to be willing to let go some of their attachment um, to being right um, or to winning. But what does winning really look like in our lives? And as they say, you can be right and still not be happy. So let's right. see what we can do to, to transform that narrative. Yeah, yeah. Um, there was a really uh, a good article in the New York Times a few weeks ago about how to have a cheaper divorce. <laughs> and they were talking about mediation. They were talking about how you have to be willing to let some things go 
um, because, you know, because you want a cheaper divorce. Like if you want a cheaper, quicker divorce, you know, you'll have to give up some things that you otherwise would maybe decide to fight further for. Um, it's not, you know, it's not free. <laughs> It'll have some cost to you, but you'll get through your divorce with fewer scars and, and having maybe saved some, you know, still had savings for your children to go to college. <laughs> and you know, it's interesting, I, that expression, if I had a nickel for every time I heard, well, one of the things I often hear from people who have been divorced that didn't know about coaching or didn't have the support of coaching or mediation. Wow. I spent so much time and energy fighting about things that the legal system couldn't solve for me. And so yeah. really, if you can get the support somewhere else, you can recognize what you will not be able to do in the legal system, what it's not built to do or, and save yeah. a lot of resources for the future. But it is amazing what people don't know. I mean, I had a couple I worked with in, in mediation and they were, uh, you know, struggling with, with, uh, resolving things. And the husband, after one session, he said, you know, this, I don't think this is working. I'm going to go to court. Um, I'm going to go on Monday. So, uh, I'll see the judge on Monday morning and I'll, you know, when will I get an, an answer? I was like, uh, court doesn't really work that way. Not you're gonna not going to see the judge for a very long time. When you see the judge, he's not going to, he or she is not going to want to hear from you. They'll want to hear from your lawyer. You know, it, it, I mean, people have this fantasy that the judge is going to be, you know, the wise father that they never had. And, and, and we'll say, oh, you poor thing. You've been putting up with that person all these years. I recognize your suffering. You know, you're an angel. And, uh, oh, Rachel, this is so true. I'm really glad you're naming this because you hear this really quite often. And people don't understand that what they're asking is someone that knows much less about their lives will not know about their lives and certainly less about their children to make decisions yeah. that impact. Right for a long time. Right, right. You know, whereas in mediation or in a collaborative process, they do have the time to tell their story and have their lawyers hear it. And I mean, um, you know, or, and they're more importantly, have their ex hear it yeah. and, you know, perhaps even have a chance to have them understand how you felt and, and recognize what you you know, suffering. I mean, I've, I've seen situations where, you know, somebody apologizes and says, I'm sorry, I couldn't do that better and meet your needs. And, you know, I was struggling with A, B, and C, and I couldn't, I did the best I could, but I recognized that I hurt you. And I'm sorry about that. You know, I, I mean, I've had, it's so like, so amazing when you, see something like that. Well, it was interesting. Yesterday I was talking um, with one of the couple I was dealing with and she said, if, if only he could say he was grateful that I, that I wasn't, you know, enough and that I'm showing up enough now in this divorce. But it was the first time, and we've been working together months that she really was able to tell me what she needed to be able to shift. And it was again, another property issue, small, smaller, but still, it was really more about saying, instead of always saying, you've done something wrong or you need to do X or Y, just say it was enough and this is enough and we can be done. And it was really, I think it does take the work and the time 
overtime to get there, but it was really transformative and amazing. And I haven't yet had the opportunity to talk to him yet to say, hey, I want you to hear what I heard. And what do you think you could do from your perspective to show up in this way? Are you even aware that that maybe she needs this meaning to hold? And would you be able to say some words that fit that bill? And my guess is he will. He's actually the one that wanted the, the very cooperative process. Um, and I don't think he recognizes the extent to which that implicit criticism may always be present. So, mm. you know, certainly because they're going to be co-parenting young adult children, um, it's important that they increase their good communication as they navigate, you know, as what we know to be an important stage for kids. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, I always feel like kind of privileged to be, uh, you know, to have people share their, their lives and their hurts and their hopes and, and, you know, to be a part of that process. I feel like honored to have clients who let me do that because it's so meaningful. It's such an intimate space really, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. So what are some of the takeaways that you would want people to, um, have from our conversation or, you know, maybe a couple of things that you would make sure clients are aware of when they come to you for coaching? I think one of the things that we get to right away is what can you do and control in this process? And of course, the answer really is only you, meaning me. So really take stock of that and recognize that, especially in moments when you're escalated, that you can only control your response, not what the other person is doing. So mm -hmm. framing a response in terms of de-escalation helps because first of all, sometimes they're trying to get that reaction from you and that escalation. So if they don't get it, then you're not hooked in and they're not hooked back. Um, and just remember that each day you have an opportunity to recreate this identity of who you are and who you wanna be. Even if they're pointing fingers and saying, you always, you never, each day you can refresh your behavior and you get to decide how you're going to be, how you can feel empowered. Even if you feel a victim of your divorce, even if you don't want it, what can you do for your next stage that helps you feel like you are in charge of who you want to be? Um, and if you can't do it alone, that's why we're here. I think that's why mediation works. I think that's why coaching works. So I just encourage people to let go what they can control what they can, which is only how they respond and react and de-escalate. And it really works. It works for adults and it really helps kids too. Yeah. I love that. Um, that reframe that you can every day, you can make a choice. Am I going to respond the way I've always responded, you know, through these years of our relationship, or do I want to try to find a different way to respond? Um, that's, that's really great because sometimes issues come up, um, and you know, um, somebody says, well, he's always been late picking up the kids. And, uh, I thought that when we divorced, he would take more responsibility. <laughs> and I, you know, I find myself saying, look, if he didn't change during the marriage, I don't think he's going to change during the divorce. During the marriage, he had all the reasons in the world to want to make you happy. <laughs> Right. And now he no longer is taking that as one of his life projects. You know, he, he's, he's, he quit that job. 
And so why do you think he's going to change now? And remember um, that you can always pause before you respond. So even if, again, you're right, it may not make you happy. It may not help the kids. So just take a pause and remember, like you said, it's not likely things are going to get better when someone's no longer your intimate partner. So treat it like that, you know, slightly, if it is, unpleasant business relationship. Be courteous. Mm -hmm. You know, use Bill Eddy's Biff method for communication. If, if you don't know what that is, it's um, I do easy but to find. Our listeners might not. Our listeners might right. not. It's really to keep your communication brief. Just provide the inf information that's necessary, not all the extraneous uh, information you think may belong. Have a friendly tone. It doesn't mean you have to be too nice, but just have a friendly tone and have a firm boundary, which just means when do you need to know what you're asking? Or how will you act if you don't hear back by a particular date? And, and there's great information. You can get uh, Bill Eddy's books on Amazon or in independent booksellers. And it's really a great method for dealing with what might be, at least at the beginning, difficult communication. So yeah. you really structure your environment for success with good boundaries in your communication, in taking care of yourself, in talking to your kids in a way that they can understand, um, it can be better. It doesn't mean the time will be easy, but it can be better for you and your kids. Yeah. And one of the other things they said in that article um, was figure out what's really important to you and what's not so important to you. That's lovely. That's exactly right. Yeah. Because it could feel like everything's important, but the reality right. is in the end, it's it's not unless you're playing, you know, the win lose game and really getting outside of that framework is everything in separation and divorce, I think. Yeah. Well, Sherry, it's been a pleasure meeting you and talking to you. Um and uh and you're doing great work. Keep it up. Um and I love the model of your um uh your cohabitation agreement with your partner to try to, um, you know, have room for both of your needs and your understanding of each other. It's a great model. And I hope uh, our listeners will be inspired by it. Thank you, Rachel. So. I really appreciate it. And I always do discovery Zoom. So if someone thinks they might want to work with me or talk to me, they go to deardivorcecoach.com and sign up for a discovery Zoom. I'd love to meet you. Oh, that's great. And we'll make sure to put your contact information in the show notes. So thanks for helping us keep the kids in mind. Thank you, Rachel. Mm -hmm.